we're going to be going to Mark chapter 11 today, and we're also going to spend some time in Mark 15, so you can kind of get both of those ready, Mark 11 and 15. Um, and I'm excited, today is the start of Holy Week, and so we call this Palm Sunday traditionally, as you're going to find out why as we work through our text today, if you don't already know, but um, for me, this Sunday is really just kind of the trigger of what's to come. Right, looking ahead to what's coming down the pipeline here as we approach Good Friday, as we approach Easter Sunday. As Chris was talking about earlier, really excited about both of those. Hopefully you've been inviting. We've given you the cards. We've given you the charge. Hopefully your heart has been stirred uh, to invite and tell others. It was great to hear stories yesterday on the prayer walk of people inviting others to come with them. And, um, and uh, just to clarify, I don't know that we've actually said it this year, um, and we kind of just kind of take it for granted that those who have been here with us in the past, they kind of know how this works. But so Friday for our Good Friday service, if you're new to Harvest or if you're new to this whole experience, um, come at 7 o'clock here at the church. Um, but we approach Good Friday as a time of mourning, right? This is, this is a time where we are coming to reflect on and to mourn the death of Christ. And so we come in all black, all right, so, so wear your black clothes, wear, uh, come with a mind and a heart ready to, to walk into that. It's not going to be your normal harvest service. There's not going to be a whole lot of joy and hooping and hollering. This is, this is a, a funeral service of sorts where we're coming to mourn what Christ did for us on the cross. And so just so your expectations are correct as you come in Friday night, uh, the lights will be low. Um, things are going to be in that zone um, as we pull that tension back. Uh, leading up to Easter Sunday, okay? So just so that's clear for us leading up to Friday. So <clears throat> as we press into the text this morning, as we start to look forward to Good Friday and Easter and all that's coming down the road for that, um, I think first we have to, to really deal with um, and look at um, where our heart is in relation to Christ and are we prepared um, for what's coming. And so today I, I want to look at that in Mark chapter 11 and, um, and, and talk about I am the crowd. And you'll see what I'm talking about as we step into this later. Um, so one of the things that I, I don't usually uh, typically concern myself with the, the lives of English royals. Um, that's not usually my wheelhouse. But for whatever reason, the last month or two, just the whole hubbub with Harry and Meghan and coming back to the U.S., like, it's just like, it's kind of like caught my attention. Like, what's going on? Like, I don't understand, like, the context here. And so I, was just, I just did a little bit of digging just to like figure out, like, what's, what's this all about? And so evidently, there has been this ongoing, like, long-brewing comparison war in England between the Duchess Meghan and the Duchess Kate, all right? And, um, and the tabloid headlines evidently are the best proof of this and kind of tell it all. So I just pulled a couple of examples here of some, some, some newspaper headlines in England comparing these two young women um, as they came into the royal family. And so like you have Kate here when she was pregnant with her uh, child and it's talking about how she's tenderly cradling her baby bump and praising how motherly she's being by you know, holding her belly. And then you have Megan, the exact same uh, newspaper saying, Megan can't keep her hands off her baby bump and basically calling her prideful and vain for touching her belly when she was pregnant in public. Exact same behavior, same newspaper, completely different approaches. Do you see what I'm talking about? Here's another one that's even more absurd. Check this one out. This one's about avocado, if that matters at all. Um, so Kate's morning sickness cure evidently was avocado. That was her thing she went to when she was dealing with morning sickness. Megan also used avocado when she was pregnant, but for her it was a human rights abuse drought millennial shame. I don't understand what even all that means. 
But it's just, it's, like, it's so shocking to me to see how, like, you can take the exact same behavior for two different people and have completely different responses as to what it means or what it's about and, and how. And so, like, why is this? Why did the papers so love Kate and so vilify Megan? I think it really comes down to, in England, um, their view of royalty and tradition, right? Kate, if you know anything about Kate, Kate, I didn't know this. I had to look it up. Kate came from a respectable high-class British family, right? She was perfectly suited and for the cultural expectations of what a royal would be and what a, a future queen might be. Where Megan, she's some loud, self-made American that came over and invaded their country, right? So, like, like she does not fit the, the, the picture of what they're wanting in their royal family and in um, a possible future queen, and so the cries that we see here of joy for one and disdain for the other is actually just revealing a deeper heart issue of what they want in the person who rules them, right? It's, it's showing who they really want to rule their country and rule their, their culture. And, and this picture right here I think is a great example, a great picture of what happens in every single human heart when it comes to rule and authority, our heart naturally cries out for and cries uh, in favor of what we want or who we want to rule our hearts. And we reject everything else. And that's what we're going to see happening here in Mark 11 and 15. And so this is kind of the main thought this morning. The cry of my heart reveals the king of my life. The cry of my heart reveals the true king of my life. So with that in mind, look at me at Mark chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of, these, some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. All right, so let's pause there. Point number one, the first thing you have to see, the most obvious thing, the most important thing about this text that we have to see is that Jesus is king. No long and short about it, Jesus is king. He's making that very clear here. Let me show you how. So in your Bibles, many of you might have even above this little passage a, a title that says the triumphal entry. Right? That's not inspired. That wasn't part of the original text, but it's, it's giving you a picture. It's giving you an idea of why this scene is so important. But this, is, this is the triumphal entry of a king into his city. This event in the life of Jesus was so profound and made such an impression on the disciples that it's one of the few events that's recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. All right? Because it, this is a major turning point in the life and the ministry of Jesus. This is kind of him walking into the final chapter. It says, when he drew near to Jerusalem. 
that phrase is signaling like this is the climax. This is what we've been waiting for. Finally, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to do what he's supposed to do. No more riddles, no more hiding. It's go time. And Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as the king, as the Messiah. And as he's doing this, he's doing it in such a way that he is purposefully fulfilling messianic prophecy. See, there's lots of prophecy in the Old Testament that said that one day a Messiah king was going to come and to, to, to rule over the nations once again. And it tells us what that would look like. And some of the other gospel accounts of this same story actually make this a little bit more obvious because they actually quote some of the Old Testament prophecy. Mark doesn't do that here. But let me read it to you from, from Zechariah 9.9. This is the, the major prophecy that we see being fulfilled here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What we're going to see unfold in this story is exactly what the prophecy said. They're going to shout. They're going to rejoice out loud in Jerusalem because the king is coming as he enters the city. And it says right here, behold, your king is coming to you. So they're the, the, the prophecy here is announcing that there's going to be a Messiah, and not just any Messiah, but he's going to come from the line of David. Right? And we know if we trace Jesus' lineage uh, back, that he indeed is from the line of David, and he's coming to what they think is to deliver Israel. And they had a very specific picture about what that would look like. Right? For generation after generation after generation, they've been waiting with great anticipation, with great expectation that the Messiah would one day come and deliver them from Roman rule, from oppression, from, from the, the authority that was put over them that they didn't ask for, that they didn't want. And just like King David freed Jerusalem from all other external entities, that the, that the Messiah was going to do the same thing. But then Zechariah 9, this prophecy, it takes a weird turn. Right? It says he's coming. He's going to bring salvation. But he's going to come humble and mounted on a donkey. What? Like, that's an unexpected twist, right? Like, that's not what you expect from the conquering king. Like, they need to be riding like a big white steed, right? And like, with the sword and the army behind him. And like, that's what you think about as a conquering king. But this says he's going to come humble and mounted on a donkey. And the reason God set it up this way is because he wanted an undeniable sign that this is the Messiah. Not all, not, all, not all those other imposters, not all those other guys who are doing it their way. Like, this is my way. This is what it looks like for the true king to come. Not only is Jesus fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 here, he's actually fulfilling other prophecy as well. A very old prophecy that's leading up to this in Genesis 49 verses 10 through 11, where um, we have Jacob who is prophesying over all of his sons, and he says of Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes." And so way back when, 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 the, when the nation of Israel was just getting started, and we're just starting to have the, the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes and grow into this massive people, 
God says through Jacob that Judah, that through the line of Judah, that the Messiah, the king, was going to come. And that this would be a king whose scepter shall not depart. That he would be a king forever. And David came from the line of Judah, and so did Christ. And so, and then you have on top of that, you have the passing references to donkey and blood. And, and what we see is that throughout the Old Testament, from Jacob to Zechariah to Mark to Jesus, that they are all saying the exact same thing, very loud, very clear, Jesus is king. And it all comes to this point right here. And so Jesus shows us that he's king in this passage in three specific ways. Number one, he proclaims his status as king. He purposefully, clearly, intentionally fulfills this prophecy as he enters Jerusalem. So the message is clear, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, I'm the one you've been waiting for. And we know that the message is clear because of how the people respond to his messianic claim. Right? They know exactly what he's doing. They know exactly what he's saying. No more question, no more guessing. Jesus says right here, he is king. And he's forcing the people now to decide, how are you going to respond? Right? In the past, it's been a little questionable. There's been, like, I'm not sure, what was he saying he is? Is he saying he isn't? Like, it's been a little cloudy up to this point. It's not cloudy anymore. Now it's clear Jesus is saying, I'm the king, and he's asking you, how will you respond to that? What are you going to do with that information? The people had a choice to make. The second way that Jesus shows us here that he is the king is that he proves his power as king, right? He tells his disciples here in a prophetic command, he says, hey, go to the city up ahead here, and as soon as you walk in on the right, you're going to find this, this little colt donkey tied up to the house there. Just go ahead and untie that, bring it back to me. Anybody says anything to you, just be like, hey, the Lord needs it. Don't worry about it, right? Like, this is weird. This would be like Jesus telling you, like, hey, go over to Walmart. In the back right, there's going to be a blue car, windows down, unlocked, keys in it. Just jump in, drive it over here, pick me up, and we're going to go do a thing. And you're like, if anybody says anything to you, just say, JC needs it. It's cool, right? And like, you're like, um, what if they have a badge? Like, I don't, like, what do I do with this? But the disciples, they just, they go because Jesus here is giving them a very clear indication that he is the king. And as they walk into the city, guess what? They find it exactly like he said. They find the donkey. They find it tied up. They take it. Somebody asks them. They say, don't worry. The Lord needs it. And they're like, okay, cool. Take it. Like, it's exactly what Jesus says. Showing that he's the king. That he has the power that nobody else has. Third way that Jesus shows us his kingly authority here is that he presses his authority onto his disciples. Notice he sent them to do this. He didn't ask them. He was like, hey, would you guys mind going and getting this donkey? No, he's like, just go and get it. And they went and they got it. No questions asked because that's what servants do. Servants do the bidding of the king. When he says something, when he sends us, we go. There's no challenge. There's no question. There's no resistance. There's just submission and obedience because that is what a king deserves. There was a movie that I used to love to watch um, years ago called The American President. Anybody remember this movie? It had Michael Douglas and Annette Bening, 
And uh, if, if you're not familiar with the movie, so Michael Douglas is this president. His name is Andrew Shepard. And he is a, um, a widow, or a widower, right? Okay. So his wife has passed away, and so he's single. And he ends up meeting this lobbyist in the White House named Sidney Ellen Wade, who's played by Annette Bening. And, and their first interaction is, like, super awkward. Like, she, like, insults him, and he kind of banters back with her, and they kind of go back and forth, and they're arguing over some political stuff. But then she leaves, and, and he decides that he kind of likes her. He kind of has a thing for this lobbyist, and so he wants, he wants to, to ask her out on a date. But he's the president. And so he asked one of his people, to like, hey, can you get her number for me? I want to call her up. And they're like, oh, okay, like, we can call her. No, 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 I want to call her. I want to do this. Okay, fine. So he gets the number, and he calls her at her home, and she answers the phone, and he says, hi, this is, this is Andrew Shepard calling. And she was like, oh, great, yeah, thanks for calling me, Mr. President. And she, like, doesn't believe it's actually him. She thinks it's, like, one of her colleagues, like, pranking her and giving her a hard time because she messed up so bad at the White House that day. And so she's like, she gives him a couple smart aleck remarks and kind of tells him off and then hangs up on him. And, and he, you see, it cuts back to, 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 to Douglas, and he hangs up the phone. He's like, this used to be easier. Like, I don't understand <laughs> what's going on. Like, all of a sudden, President, you can't ask a girl out anymore. But he's, un, he's undeterred. Right? He, he wants to, to go out there. So he calls her up again. And he calls her up, and he says, all right, um, don't hang up. And uh, he says, I'm going to give you a number. I want you to call this number, and it's going to be the White House switchboard. And I want you to tell them that your name is Sidney Ellen Wade and ask to speak to the president, and then they'll patch you through. And so she's like, okay. And so they hang up, and you just see, like, the, 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 her face just go completely flush because she has now insulted the president twice in one day. Um, and indeed, she calls back, and obviously it's him. But the reason she didn't believe him the first time when he called, the reason she didn't believe in his authority, because she didn't think it was him. Or she didn't really think it was the president. She thought it was somebody else, like pranking her or whatever. And so she didn't believe that his authority was. But once she realized, like, this is for real, and she calls the White House, she says, hi, my name is Sydney. Can you, I talk to the president. And, they, and she's like, oh, sure, no problem. He's expecting your call. And they patch her through. Like, she has this moment where she's like, she finally realizes, I am actually talking to the leader of the free world. And, and everything changes at that point. Because the authority came clear. This is the same experience that the people just had with Jesus. Up to this point, he's been some itinerant minister. He's kind of been walking around. He's been doing some cool things with some of the miracles and stuff, but they don't really know for sure what he's all about. But once he starts walking into the city and clearly showing who he is, the Messiah King, they now are forced to make a decision of how am I going to respond to this guy now that I see clearly what his authority is. That is the most important moment of their lives. And the same is true with us. Every single one of us, at some point in our lives, our eyes are opened and we finally see Jesus for who he really is. We see the king, we see his glory, we see his authority, and that moment in your life is the most important moment in your life. Because it's at that moment that you now have a decision to make. How are you going to respond to the king? Jesus is king. How will you respond to him? We're going to see two different responses here in the remainder of our text. So let's take a look at those. Go with me to verse 7. It says, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. When, they, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. First response we see here, point number two, cry Hosanna on Sunday. This is how the crowd responds. As he walks in, they cry Hosanna to the king on Sunday, on the beginning of Holy Week. Now, again, the message is clear, right? They obviously understand that he is claiming to be the Messiah because of how they respond. They respond in worship. They respond in honor to who he is. And they honor him in three ways. Number one, they honor the king in sacrifice. They honor the king in sacrifice. This whole thing, they start says that they take their cloaks off and they put them on the road. And I think that that symbol, that, that gesture that they do there can kind of get lost on us because that's not a thing we really do anymore. But it's, it's very, very important here. This was the, uh, the way that it was customary to honor the king when he was first coming into his kingship. We actually see this in Second uh, Kings chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. King Jehu is anointed king kind of on the spot and everybody's surprised. But immediately, as soon as he's anointed king, they start taking off their cloaks and they start laying them on the stairs as he's walking down. This is the way that you symbolized honor for the brand new anointed king. But it's even more than just that. You see... If you know anything about the ancient Near East during this time, the cloak was an extremely valuable possession. It was a highly regarded possession. It was, it was their outer garment. It was like what we would call a coat. Right? It was like their outer garment that they would wear um, to, to kind of keep the rest of their clothes clean when they were traveling. And, and they would use it to keep themselves warm at night. They would actually use it as a blanket when they laid down. They would lay their cloak over them. It's how they kept warm in the, the cool climate there in the evenings. Um, it was something that, uh, that, that, that not everyone got to have one because they were kind of expensive. It was kind of a, not exactly a luxury, but it was, it was something that you had to have enough money to actually be able to get one because they were so valuable and so needed by everyone. And so for them to take off this cloak that is so valuable, that probably one of their most valued possessions, and to throw it on the ground in the dirt so that the king and the donkey can walk over it and do whatever else they might do on it as they're walking was an extreme sacrifice for these people. It wasn't just a gesture of custom. It was a worshipful sacrifice to honor the king. And some people, they didn't, evidently didn't have cloaks with them, but they still wanted to honor the king somewhere. And so their sacrifice was not to throw their cloak down. They went out into the field real quick, and they cut down a branch, and they brought it, and they were laying branches down at the feet of the king just to be able to give him something, just to honor him with some sacrifice. And so we see them honor the king in sacrifice first, and then we see them honor the king in song. Right? It says that they cried out, Hosanna in the highest. And they're worshiping, and they're singing, and they're shouting. And actually, again, the reason we know they're singing, because the text doesn't say they're singing, but we know that they're singing because what they're saying is a psalm. It's an Old Testament hymn. It's, it's a song that they've been singing for generations an expectation that one day the Messiah was going to come. 
It actually connects back to Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they honor him in sacrifice, and they honor him in song. And this is the same thing that we should be doing to honor the king today. We honor him in sacrifice. Every Sunday when you come, we take an offering. And that's not just because the church needs money. Do you understand that? We do have to have some money. We have some bills to pay, but that's not the primary reason we take an offering. We take an offering so that you can worship the king through sacrifice. So we sacrifice our money. We sacrifice our resources. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our talents. We bring whatever we have and we put it at the feet of the king in worship. Because he's worthy of that. We worship him in service. So many of you serve here on on a weekly or monthly basis, somewhere at our church, serving others and serving the Lord as you're serving others. But it shouldn't just be here on Sundays. We should be serving the king all the time. When you're at work and you're serving your boss or you're serving your coworkers, you're doing that as you're serving the king. In your homes, when you're serving your kids or your spouse, like you're doing that as an act of worship as you're serving them on behalf of the king. When you're serving your neighbors, when you're loving on them, when you're helping them with things around their house or when you're cooking them a meal or when you're praying for them, you're serving them because it's an act of honor and worship to the king who has called us to this great mission. So we honor with sacrifice. We honor with serving. We honor, honor him in song. This is why Sunday morning is so important. This isn't just the way we like to do it. This isn't just some ritual we came up with. This is what the Bible tells us is that we worship him in song. We worship him in his word. We worship on Sunday mornings because he is worthy of this. Friends, this time last year, we didn't get to do this. For two months or more, we didn't get to gather in person. And I don't know about you, but I missed it every week. I longed for this. To be with God's people, singing and worshiping and honoring the king. And if your heart doesn't long for this on a weekly basis, then you need to check your heart. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying, like, listen, if this isn't part of who you are, then it worries me that you don't really have the relationship you need to have with the king, and something else is stealing your worship and your honor, and something else feels more important than Jesus does in your life. Because this is what we do. We sacrifice, we serve, we sing, we worship because we want to honor the king. They honored him in sacrifice and song, and then they honored the king who saves us. And this is the key here. This word Hosanna that they're crying out, that word Hosanna actually means save us. It's the Hebrew word transliterated here in the Greek. 
That's why you didn't see the word Hosanna in Psalm 118. It's there. It's just the Greek word for the part where it says, save us. It's the same thing. That's what they're crying out here. And they're pointing here to the clear expectation that Jesus is the Messiah because they're saying, you're finally here. You're finally here to save us. I think it's also important to understand historically here that this is the beginning for them of Passover week. Remember Passover in the Old Testament? This was the festival that they celebrated every year to remember when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. When he brought them out of Egypt and he took them into the promised land, that's represented by Passover. And so the fact that the Messiah is riding in to Jerusalem, God's holy city, on the first day of Passover, do you think that that didn't mean something to them? They're like, he's coming to rescue us just like God rescued us before. He's going to deliver us from the Romans just like he delivered us from Egypt. Like all this expectation is coming because Jesus is coming into into the city. We see this even in his closest disciples. The guys who have been with him for years and years, and they should, they should know what he's doing here, but somehow they're still not quite on the same page yet because after he dies and is resurrected here at the end of the week, in Acts 1-6, here's what they say. They say, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, they're still thinking, all right, you did the, you did the, 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 the crucifixion, the resurrection thing, that's cool, we love that, but like now are you going to kick the Romans out? Like now is our time, right? Like now you're going to finally do this thing. Because this is what they had, they, like this is what the Messiah was supposed to do. Even the religious leaders, the Pharisees here, clearly understand that Jesus is claiming to be the king. Because look at how they respond. This isn't in Mark, this is in the Luke account of the same story. But in Luke chapter 19, 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They were crying out, Hosanna, and he's like, Tell them to be quiet. Because they didn't really believe that he was the Messiah, and so if he's not the Messiah, then everything they're saying is blasphemy. So you need to shut them up, because but what they're saying is, is, against, is against God. And I love Jesus' response. Verse 40, he says, He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I can tell them to be quiet, but it ain't going to change anything (laughs) because I'm still the king. And the king will be honored and worshipped even if it's not from us. When you fail to honor and worship the king, it doesn't take one thing away from Jesus. He still is who he is. You just miss the blessing of getting to be one of the servants honoring the king. But this king is clearly a different kind of king. It says he comes in humble riding on a donkey, right? And this isn't just a publicity stunt. This isn't just some like momentary act that Jesus does to kind of trick the people into thinking that he's the Messiah. This is what defined the life of Jesus. Think about it. He was humbly born in a stable He was born to humble parents of meager means. He didn't come from a a, a rich family or he came from podunk Nazareth, right? Like like this is is not the guy that, that has all the clout. He was humble in his ministry. He's an itinerant minister going around from city to city, no money, no name, no fame. He has very few people following him. He was humble at his false arrest 
and trial, when he's being mocked and slandered and lied about, and he silently stood there in humility and took it. He'll be humble at his death when he pays a penalty that's not his own. He's even humble in his burial. He doesn't even have his own tomb. The king of the universe didn't have his own place to be buried. He had to borrow it from somebody else. Jesus' entire purpose in life was to be the humble king who would come and came to save his rebellious servants. This is the king that we worship. Paul captures this really well in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't miss how he started that line right there. It's like the same way Jesus is, be like that. Okay? He says, Have the same mind in you that Christ has, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The king became a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, connecting word, Because he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is King to the glory of God. You see, Jesus is the king, not because he conquered some human empire, not because he had the biggest army, or because he got everybody on earth to bow down to him. Jesus is the king because he humbly gave his life to conquer sin and death. And no one else has ever done that. Jesus isn't just a king. He's the ultimate king who sacrificed himself to rescue you and to let you have a place in his kingdom. Jesus is king. The question is, will you worship him? Will you cry Hosanna? Will you give him the honor that he is due? So that's one response. Hosanna, save us, worship. But there's a second response. Go ahead and flip over to Mark 15 in your Bible. It's just a couple pages over. Mark 15, a little bit later on in Holy Week, in Passover week, picking up in verse 6, we see this. It says, now at the feast, that's the Passover feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. That means Pilate, the governor, used to release one prisoner. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. 
And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? This was the title they had given Jesus at this point. Do you want me to release for you Jesus, the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released to them for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The second response to the king that we see is to cry, crucify him on Friday. Cry, crucify him on Friday. So again, there's a transition that happens here, right? So you have Sunday, he's coming in, everyone's yelling, Hosanna, worshiping the king, and then throughout the week, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they say, we got, we got to put an end to this whole Jesus thing. And so they go and they arrest him in the middle of the night. They put him on a false trial in the middle of the night, only to the next morning then go and hand him over to Pilate with the accusation that this man is claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's trying to overthrow the Roman rule. He's trying to, to say that, he, that Caesar's not king, that he is king. And they did this because they were seeking to kill Jesus. And the Jews did not have the authority to administer the death penalty in their justice system. Only the Romans could do that. And so they forced this into Pilate's jurisdiction in hopes that he will crucify Jesus. And so the question I want to deal with on this is simply this, why? Why did they want to crucify the king? I think we see three different reasons from three different people in this passage. Number one, we have the crowd. The crowd yelled crucify him out of ignorance. See, most of these people probably had no idea who Jesus was or what he had supposedly done. It says right here in the text that the chief priests stirred them up to say crucify him. So they're just taking their cues from the priest. They have no idea who this guy is. And they, they didn't know the truth, and they didn't care enough to find out what the truth really was. They just jumped on whatever bandwagon, whatever message best fit their personal agenda. Whatever was going to serve them the best, and they just went with it. Now granted, this is probably, just to be clear, this is probably a different crowd than the crowd in the last passage. All right? The first crowd is those, seems to be like pilgrims that are coming to Jerusalem for the festival because they're coming into the city with Jesus, right? So they're probably traveling there to celebrate Passover. For this crowd, they know the priests. They know the Pharisees there. So they're like, they probably live in Jerusalem. These are like the Jerusalem natives because they already have a connection where they're willing to listen to these leaders and to do whatever they tell them to do. But despite being two different crowds, I think both still give a good picture of what can happen in the human heart when it comes to Jesus. So I think the important question here is, which crowd are you in? 
Are you ignorant of who Jesus really is? Have you just kind of went along with the, the normal story, the normal cultural opinion about who Jesus is and just kind of went with the flow of everything else and just not really ever even tried to figure out for real like who he is and who he isn't? Are you just living in, in blissful ignorance, if you will? Or are you genuinely seeking to know, to understand to see who he really is and in turn to worship him if he really is the king. This is the most important question that you will ever answer. Is Jesus king? And how will you respond to that reality? It's not enough. The, the excuse of I didn't know will not be good enough. So first group, cry crucify him out of ignorance. The second group is the priests. The priests cry crucify him out of pride. It says here in the text that they called him the king of the Jews. And that's because that's exactly how they saw him. They saw him as a threat to their power. That he was trying to take over. He was trying to become the top dog. And right now, they were the top dogs. They had all the authority. They had all the power. And they did not want to give that up. They were jealous of him. They didn't want him to be king. They wanted to be king. They wanted to reign and rule over the Jews. And so it says, out of envy, they offered him up. This is how self-righteous they had become. They had it all figured out. They had, it, they had it all just the way it needed to be. They didn't need any help. They didn't need anybody else telling them or fixing anything. They were in charge. They didn't need a savior. They didn't need a king. And again, this is the natural bent of the human heart. Right? This is, this is where we all start at. I don't need a king. I'm my own king. I don't need a savior. I can save myself. I've got this under control. It's my life. I'll do it the way I want to do it. But really, when you're saying that, what your heart is really crying out is crucify him. I don't want him. I don't need him. Get rid of that king because I'm my own king. And that flows from a heart of pride. Is that you today? Are you the one who's sitting on the throne of your heart? Are you the one who's the king of your life? Are you rejecting Jesus because you don't want to give up the place of king? So some yell crucify him out of ignorance. Some yell crucify him out of pride. And then thirdly, we have Pilate who said crucify him out of fear. He knew. He knew that Jesus was innocent. Do you see it? It says he perceived that it was out of envy that they handed him over. They knew that the motives, he knew the motives weren't pure here. 
And he tries repeatedly to free him. He's like, how about I release the king of the Jews, right? Like, he, he didn't really do anything anyway, so let's just, let's just let him go. And even and when, they, when they say, no, crucify him, crucify him, he even comes back one more time and says, what evil has he done? <laughs> like he's like, I don't even know. Like, I can't even tell you what we're, why we're crucifying this man. He, he's innocent. And Pilate knew it. But in the end, he feared the people more than he feared God. It says that he, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate rejected Jesus because he was afraid of what it might cost him. He was afraid of losing his power, losing his position, losing his favor with the people. He didn't want to give all that up. But here's the thing that he didn't understand. Here's the truth, friends. Nothing in this life is worth more Jesus. I think sometimes we get in the same fear mentality, right? That we don't want to give it up. We don't, we don't want to, we have this fear of, I don't want to have to give up my weekends. I don't want to have to give up my addiction. I don't want to have to give up my freedom or my relationships or my money. Like, I, I don't, I'm going to lose stuff. I'm going to, to, I'm going to have to give things up if I follow Christ. But the Bible says, That if you want to keep your life, you have to lose it. And when a fear of losing our life keeps us from Jesus, what we're really losing is not this life. We're losing eternal life. See, when you're scared to lose all these other things, you're fearful of the wrong side. Because none of those other things I just listed are important. They're momentary, they're temporary, they're, they're fleeting. None of them are as important as you think they are. In the end, none of those things matter. But if you fear losing this life, that's a guarantee that you will when it's all said and done. Because when you continue to reject the king, what your heart is really crying out is crucify him. So what is the cry of your heart today? Are you worshiping the king? Or are you worshiping something else? Jesus is king. The question is, will you worship him or reject him? The cry of my heart reveals the king of my life.